HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today we're very happy, I'm very happy, to be in the telephone virtual world of radio making with my friend Evan, who I just reconnected with um, after 10 years of sustained activism in, in our separate fields, in our separate geographies, our geographies reconnected and so did we hi evan hey severin how are you doing down there i'm i'm doing good we're in dry southern california where are you at i'm in slightly moist central california yeah you know hi i'm in piscinas california which is like monterey level oh fun tell me uh What's going on down there at the Ecology Center? Big picture or small picture? Start big. Start big. Well, just general orientation on our work. We're a little eco-education center, uh, one-acre kind of demonstration site on all things an ecological design orientation. And we're on a really great larger landscape. It's a 26-acre working organic farm, which is super rare in this built environment of Southern California. So we've, uh, we've kind of, over the years, taken a dirt lot and to a thriving education and community center. And we do many, many things here, but they all ultimately revolve around hands-on, ecological solutions and community building. So what he's talking about is this super beautiful little white Victorian house <laughs> that I think might have been kind of smelling like bats and rats when you guys moved in yeah. and is now super hip and cool and teaching lots of workshops 
and all restored and groovy as like a cool kid clubhouse of regenerative practice. Uh, yeah, so we, now that you've done so much, what are yeah, you going to well, do I mean, I still, next? Well, you know, we both are um, family members of Camp Joy, right? And so I went to UC yeah. Santa Cruz, and then after Camp Joy, I farmed in Latin America and consulted on projects in West Africa for about five and a half years. And then ultimately all of that, that was broad acre ecological design, so designing literally 1,000 acre kind of integrated agriculture um, projects, uh, other types of developments, but all revolving around land management. And I guess kind of had this larger calling, which was about longer-term commitments and community impact, and it just felt like coming back home to Orange County, as scary as that was, um, was going to be the path of, that that is the path I chose, versus going and taking on some work in West Africa to model what sustainable agriculture looked like. I figured, why as well do it in my backyard. Well, and this describes the pathway of many young agrarians in our listener base who are navigating their own pathway and career trajectory through sustainable agriculture. Uh, Evan and I both started as apprentices at this really wonderful organic farm in the hills above Santa Cruz called Camp Joy, which does uh, biodynamic. And uh, I don't know, more than biodynamic, but special, special uh, permanent beds and Alan Chadwick-style gardens and bouquets and vegetable production and goats. And then uh, you went off into the wild world in a pretty big way. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, I always, you know, Santa Cruz was a great learning environment. really is a hotbed and epicenter for the sustainable ag conversation and movement and always felt like... um, yeah, got the training wheels off and had to figure it out and actually create communities like that other places. And it's been a really fun journey to, to be a pioneer of bringing what sustainable ag looks like to communities, whether, you know, far remote regions of Costa Rica or kind of the more developed areas of Nigeria, but it ultimately ended up in Orange County, which is also equally as, as crazy. Well, and so one thing that's true um, in the circuit I run, spending time in some of the hotbed places in Vermont and northern, and you know Hudson Valley and Northern California and Upper Midwest, and meeting a bunch of young farmers who are working in these more lauded and established venues of sustainable ag, and working with some of our real mentors in the elder community or our elders in organic ag, is then meeting those same people out uh, in unexpected places, you know, in Iowa and rural Wisconsin, and uh, that that dispersal that is going on of um, of this movement. And I wonder if you could reflect, uh, you know, and so then just being in you know in Baltimore and in, and in Philadelphia and seeing all the urban ag happening there, and then, you know, it's happening in Charlottesville, it's happening in Nashville, it's happening, and you kind of blink your eyes, and all of a sudden, uh, all of these places that didn't used to be, you know, super hubs have 
you know, multiple staff positions in city government that have to do with urban agriculture and mm. with urban access to compost and with nutrition programs linked in with hospitals. And, you know, the thing is happening and in all sorts of places. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your your area and where it was and, and what you've seen and how long of a time in order to maybe embolden those who are midway in their career and have gone out and learned a bunch of training and who might, like you, be inspired to go back to their home place um, and engage. Yeah, I mean, even just speaking for over the last seven years since starting this, the Ecology Center, you know, Orange County, to set the tone for those that don't know the geography here, we're between L.A. and San Diego, and there's about three and a half million people in a pretty densely packed area without any real su- substantial agriculture. Um, so there's a complete disconnect to our environment uh, within the demographic here. So, you know, I was in, I wasn't certain that this would have been a, this was going to be a successful model when I started, and that people were even interested in the conversation. And our conversation is larger than just growing food, or um, not that that's not an incredibly large conversation. But our conversation here at the center is really about connecting people to decision making that helps support local farmers and gets these celebrated chefs to be using product that is um, grown with integrity in a local radius and obviously programming um, that's kind of and models all of that stuff. So to be honest, um, we've, the community has grown a lot really quick with us, but there's an, uh, as, as an example in Orange County where you would think the demographic wouldn't be resonating with, this type of work is extremely, um, extremely engaged and, and the demand is Humongous. I mean, not just here, but I think I would assume in, in every community, people are trying to grasp with what is what is this new lexicon of of living and how do we participate in it. So um, ultimately, it all comes back to how do we make a fun, creative experience for people. Well, and so that's something I think you're super good at. And uh, you know, my praise is is generally a little bit salty, but holy moly, it's so awesome there, and everything looks great, and the pedagogy that you adopted, your methods for giving your participants or your um, your visitors a really incredibly hands-on experience is like the best natural history museum of organic agriculture ever, with amazing exhibits. Uh, Can you talk about your sweet. your kind of pedagogical approach and you know, you partner with brands, you partner with designers, you make all these awesome three-dimensional exhibits. Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like that's, that's, that. that's crucial not just for us as an education center, um, but I think that's crucial for the 21st century is that we have the ability to use the resources, tools, and expertise around us to create compelling products or organizations or programs that can compete with basically any brand, right? Why wouldn't we, we have the tools around us so that could be design or that could be, um, you know, the educational capacity of our work or the the community building piece, but there's so many capable people. We just need to put the pieces together. And so I think that's always been, from my perspective, there's an aesthetic um, disconnect with the sustainability movement in general. And I think that now that we're in the 21st century, we can't uh, think that that's okay. We need to kind of actually meet our meet the general community where they're at with what they're comfortable with, with just a different type of program and experience. And so, yeah, we, we work with 
uh, all sorts of amazing artists and designers and, and have focused on that uh, since the very beginning to create a, a world-class center that doesn't have any barriers of entry ultimately. Well, and of course, you know, dorky peaceniks will always make ugly flyers, but we have the potential to make non-ugly flyers and and more 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 groovy design forward products, especially as uh, our new economy is allowing for more flexibility and um, kind of hybridity in terms of career for the movement as, as a whole. And I'm talking about small towns being places where people who are graphic designers can work not only in Orange County, but that's totally true um, even in less urban settings that there's a bunch of skills around and that connecting them to each other is one of the core skill sets of rebuilding yeah, and I think these are, these are translatable to not just a community center, education center like this, but to a farm, right? So every farm needs to have a relationship to a, at least one chef, and that's not selling produce. That's actually modeling how do you most appropriately use that food. So it's having dinners or, you know, cooking classes. You need to have a relationship to a designer to make sure that the branding is is sophisticated. You know, all of these other pieces that are already inherent within any community, rural or urban, that that's that's sort of the net, and that's where I think as you know, I I, I talk about that a little bit when I have uh, permaculture students. Is that hey, not everyone needs to be a farmer, right? You you know, be good at something. And if you're already good at something like design or culinary or whatever it might be, finances, like just choose how do you integrate the right thing into that profession. So um, it's about partnerships and, and collaboration. I think. So tell us what's coming along. I like your tactic. I like your 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 how you do it, and I think people also who are listening will like it. Um, what what's coming up next for you? What kind of programs are you offering? What's the demand that you see coming around the corner um, now that you're seven years in? Uh, how does your program evolve? Yeah. So ultimately, our programming is evolving into how do we facilitate a community movement. So instead of us developing workshops, uh, skills-based learning, publications, or events. We're doing that also, but it's really more about how do we create a concerted effort of the most amount of people. And I, I don't know if that is that, depending on the program, how we define the number, it's not necessarily a huge volume. It's just people working in connection to each other. So, for example, we have been working to mentor the school garden community throughout the region. And so we train up teachers, we help design their gardens, we give them technical skills, we help write curriculum, but ultimately we are like the hub. And so now what we're trying to do in that program is not just mentor a few dozen schools, is actually how do we create a, a mechanism or a community that mentors them, themselves so that that could scale over time, meaning like we ultimately just want this idea of, of ecosystem development, so growing food and planting fruit trees and composting your waste and harvesting your rainwater, all to be connected everywhere. And then the, as that becomes infectious, then it's obvious that our schools will be the benefit of that because our parents that are engaged and our children engaged at their houses are going to demand that in their schools. So that's probably a little convoluted, but that's some of the ideas of how 
to think of sustaining an idea so it's not just on the back of our organization? Well, and, you know, there's the evolution of a, of a model. You know, Saul Alinsky and a lot of the community organizer role traditionally has been for an organizer or an activist to go into a community and figure out what that community needs and go about setting up systems for that community to provide for itself or to articulate its need in such a way that it's met. And it seems like that's, you know, in terms of resilience-based organizing or regenerative-based organizing, that that's one of the core tactics is helping connect the parts of the community together in order to enact or prototype and then enact solutions that work for a, a large number of people and that are self-perpetuating. I think it's um, more exciting that way. Need, what? I think it's more exciting that way as opposed to, you know, one organization think that to scale you just have to have more people. And, you know, you, you just have to think creatively about it. How do you make more impact with without adding more more people, more resources type of thing? Well, and, you know, uh, one of the big reasons I'm so into the Grange is that the Grange is uh, a communitarian shaped organization that's a lot more horizontal in yeah. terms of who are the beneficiaries and who are the protagonists of the programming and that the leadership is much more uh, much broader than than one you know one executive director and then some program people and then everything kind of deploying out like right. from a stereo but instead it's more of a circle like a circular stereo and uh, it feels like that, especially in times when there's more constraint around philanthropy dollars, mm -hmm. that those more community-based or communitarian-type institutions have a greater potential for being durable. Uh, anyway, your building looks like a Grange, and we had a really fun time coming there with our Grange Future Tour, Yeah, that was which so gives awesome. me a good moment to plug the fact that Grange Future Tour is going to Oregon next month. Or, yeah, February, and we're screening uh, the Up Up Farm Film Festival in, I think, nine nine different granges. So, anyway, if you're in awesome. Oregon or if you want to plug in with that, yeah, well, we'll think uh, about us. Email Maybe the office. If possible, next summer we can do, do some screenings as well. Cool. Yeah, in the summer in Southern California is a good time to go indoors and eat popsicles. <laughs> it's true, or, or go outdoors and just wait for the sun to fall. Yeah. What else is coming up on your horizon? What else are you thinking about or seeing that wants I to think, get I mean, Yeah, organized? I mean, there's some really big ideas for how do we, you know, we, I just got out of a meeting actually with a group of really smart people that I have around me that I'm fortunate, you know, fortunate to have good advisors around me, but thinking about how do we help facilitate, articulate, and, and organize, if you will, the local food movement here at large. So we're just kind of thinking about um, what is, you know, what is the, the long-term commitment and strategy look like for us to make a larger difference? Like, is that, do we, you know, do we take on farming as a model and really show best practices in this climate, or do we more create a hub for, um, and, a, and, a, and a network and distribution around local farmers connecting to the, the, you know, 
consumers and and or and or restaurants, et cetera, that are interested in these products and just trying to amplify the message. So, I think that's ultimately a big picture is just trying to figure out how do we do get good food in the hands of more people and all unify that message. And um, there's a lot of other smaller things that we're working on as well. <laughs> well, and, you know, Southern California, what I'm looking out right now in Central California is um, a bunch of hundreds of, ac- hundreds of acres of lettuce right. and irrigated perishable vegetable crops that right. are one of the mainstays of California agriculture yeah. and which are increasingly uh, increasingly not appropriate to a drought uh, a drought stricken region or just droughtier region yeah um, that's what the kind of long term projections are for California generally is less water overall pretty reliable you know pretty reliable models according to the climate science conference that I went to and so the question for organizing and especially future looking organizing about resilient food systems is what does transition look like? What does experimentation look like in terms of the kinds of crops and cropping systems that are more weather appropriate or climate appropriate or drought appropriate yeah, than all this the, freaking baby lettuce? <laughs> I know. Well, that's a, that's the million dollar question too, which is can we eat? climate-appropriate crops. For example, when I, I lived and worked in tropical Latin America for five and a half years, and we so you're, when you're in the tropics, you it's a completely different pattern of agriculture. It's all tree-based. It looks like a rainforest, so it's um, agroforestry at large. And then the, the, the diversity is totally different. Um, even in terms of your vegetables, you're mostly eating greens that come from trees, and you're eating a lot of starch and root crops um, that are understory. And so even at large scale, that's the, you just have to change your diet. But what's interesting I would see with a lot of people that were also from Western places that were all living in the tropics, they would bring their lettuce seeds or they would bring their, you know, even their European root crops and try to grow those in the tropics and just put so much energy into it, um, mostly backyard gardeners, and not have any success. And it was just that's the hard cultural shift of are you willing to eat climate-appropriate plants? And it was hard to see that in the tropics, and it'll be interesting. Can we push that forward here in the Tampa region? Well, and, you know, olive oil isn't so controversial, but once you start talking about, like, carob or ice cream beans that starts getting out of people's comfort zone, I guess that would be another place for the chef is in the being really well in cahoots with some of the experimental growers uh, and really cha- uh, championing those growers who are experimenting with um, some of those crops yeah. to support the kind of R&D that they're doing on behalf of the larger bioregion. Yeah, why is, that, why is olive controversial? Olives are not. I think olives are, are like the least controversial droughty crop there is. Oh, right. right, right yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, there's so many great, I, I, I think of the pattern, it looks, you know, what are people in Greece? What are people in Morocco? What are, you know, places in these, these, these places that are very similar to Southern California? And you're going to get amazing diversity. And, um, and that's, for us, you know, in a place where we don't have water resources, uh, 
to speak of underground or in you know local basins of any any note, then it's we have to think about agriculture shifting. You know, and even though we can grow avocados at scale and we can grow you know you name it tropical fruit because it doesn't freeze in southern in you know deep San Diego kind of San, uh, southern California, then we might not be able to afford that from a, a water perspective, and so it might look like a shift. Well, and, you know, um, I was just watching this cool movie called The Big Short mm. where um, those guys were basically betting against the housing market and then they won, and there was one guy who was like, you know, even if you're right, if you're too early, that could be wrong, and even mm. if you're right, if you're too late, that could be wrong. And, you know, one of the big questions as young farmers starting businesses struggle with how our marketplace values their goods and struggle with really high land costs and struggle with the the, the labor price being artificially low because of um, poor 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 rates for labor and in um, a lot of immigrant labor that is undervalued. It's almost like just because you're, just because, um, you know, being early can feel wrong. And I wonder, however, how in this, in terms of climate, that we can better align incentives where being early, um, you know, has a more direct payoff for those who are taking risks and looking ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't have an answer to that question. It's more of a philosophical question is, you know, how are we uh, better able to value, appreciate, reward those who are thinking ahead in these terms? Yeah, we, exactly. We could create some kind of a crown, like a crowning, like a cer- ceremony. Well, I think like, you have to find the right, you know, there's. I think there's there's a great market for specialty products, and especially climate-appropriate specialty products. You know, I I always lean on our culinary community, you know, all these great restaurants that want to do the right thing, and and for us in our region don't have access to a great product. So I think that's the incentive is that, you know, that's that's the niche. That's um, That's the advantage that a farmer would have by doing the right thing is one, it's storytelling, but two, it's a unique product. Yeah, if you're the only one growing sapote or ice cream bean or making homemade carob, that you can sell it in the in the more fancy category, right. direct market it to chefs. Yeah, I mean, even just you know, I look at towards other Mediterranean crops. What what can we do with pomegranates and figs and mulberries and all that kind of stuff? You know, how do we can we push that further and we actually celebrate that as a society that those are the plants that grow best here. So, um, you know, and looking back, not only across the Mediterranean regions, but you're there and right next to the mission, um, the Padres who were setting up the trade route during the time of the colonial period of Spain, trading up and down the, the coast of California, each, each of the missions within a, a mule day journey of the other. Mm-hmm. And they were... They were growing a lot of wheat and exporting a lot of wheat and dry beans. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, our friend and, Alex uh, Weiser, I don't know if, if you know him, amazing farmer out of, is 
distributions in LA and he's in Tehachapi, but he's doing some really cool um, grain work and trying to bring back the idea that, that the, they call it the Golden State because there used to be so much grain and it is a dry land crop. So um, there is an appropriate annual rotation as well. Totally. Yeah. yeah I love that. More beans are always good. More beans are always good. <laughs> well, it's really nice to see. I mean, I just, you know, get coming into a decade in this work and seeing how many, how how kind of cosmopolitan the uh, Young Farmers Movement is, how many people move around and cross-pollinate and how well information flows across geographies and up and down scales of work and fluidly between organizations and anyway I am really impressed with how networked the network is yeah and I just well, hope we can keep you for growing the and faster and faster yeah go ahead no, I said thanks to you for leading helping organize that and it's a, ma- a massive undertaking and it's really important work really important work let it continue so thank you all for listening and Please do keep tuning in because we have this new film festival that we're peddling. It's about 17 films. Maybe it's 17 and a half films because there's some that are short. (laughs) And they're all young farmer films, and they're all oriented at young audiences who are considering a career in agriculture and the factors that determine how that career will go, similar to the Greenhorn film, and but more and some of them even much better. <laughs> and it's called Up Up Farm Film Festival. And you or your town or your library or your Rotary Club or your Grange or your community center or your church um, could host that. And if you've never organized anything before, take it from me, take it from Mark, from Evan, uh, you can learn how to organize. It's not rocket science. And starting with something pretty manageable like a film festival and having something concrete to do, like talk together in a group of people that you may or may not know, eating popcorn about topics of relevance to the landscape around you, is as good a way to start as any. <laughs> uh, community is a prerequisite to almost every action. So, anywho, there's my pitch. I love Up, it. Up Farms Film Festival. You got any pitches or upcoming events you want to call out? Evan? we got a really cool, if you're local, we do a lot of really great skills-based workshops, and we're doing a lot of work around rainwater harvesting this season. So if you want a really great discounted rain barrel or need some guidance on anything around water, that's the season for us. And then we're doing a lot of farm dinners. We have a Chez Panisse coming down in two weeks for a dinner and then a bunch of amazing chefs kind of every month. So if you guys are in the... Southern California region. Check it out. It's our community table series and all that work and more. And if you're freaked out by the traffic, you can get there by train. Yes, exactly. Right here in San Juan Capistrano. San Juan Capistrano. You can take your bike on the tr- on the Amtrak. No problem. No problem. Yeah, check it out. TheEcologyCenter.org. There's a the in front. It's complicated. All right, part. everybody. Thank you for your attention again and this is something like our 262nd episode. Starting to get Thanks, into a real rhythm here.
Thank you, Evan. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>